first museum in America dedicated entirely to slavery opened just a few months ago. Michelle Miller traveled to Wallace, Louisiana and found a surprising history, not just about a plantation, but her own family. Michelle, good morning. Good morning. Well, about an hour's drive from New Orleans along the Mississippi River sits the Civil War era sugarcane plantation. The Whitney Plantation looms as a stark reminder that our nation was built on the backs of slaves. It's a tough part of our history to remember, but one man is investing a fortune to bring it all back to life. This house is full of secrets. They would sleep on pallets on the floors. And Beneath whitewashed ceilings, through quiet gardens, a dark history unfolds. Tourists peer into cages where slaves were beaten. Statues of black children stare back at them. In this sanctuary, memorializing the harsh reality of slavery, one figure seems out of place. Good to see you. 77-year-old John Cummings. Most people operate on ready, aim, fire, and I always operate on ready, fire, and an aim. 16 years ago, the New Orleans native and millionaire trial lawyer jumped at the chance to buy this 250-acre plantation without really knowing what he was getting into. What didn't you know? And I got to the slave part. And I saw some of the, some of the inventories from successions. And I was looking, man, 40 people just traded like cattle. And so then I discovered the oral histories, and that's when the light went on. I got something here. Well, I've got a great injustice here. Cummings decided to dedicate the entire plantation to the slave perspective. He spent $8 million of his own money collecting antiques and commissioning art. The vacant Whitney started coming back to life. I tell people when they say, well, why is a white man uh, involved in this. I'll say, well, don't you remember it was a white, white man who caused all of this. Here we honor the memory of uh, 107,000 people. To give it a voice, Cummings hired Senegalese historian Dr. Ibrahim Sek. It is just amazing how these people... Sek called diaries and inventories from auction and estate sales. He found more than 100,000 names of slaves traded and sold through the Louisiana Territory. Each name is etched into these walls. There is no order, just like it was total confusion, that just like the lives of the slaves. You see, you have African names, French names, Spanish names. Next to those names are the narratives of the slaves themselves. Doesn't mean much, but we make them talk. It is just a way for us to give them a voice because these people were voiceless people. One of the voiceless, the powerless, was a slave girl named Anna who had a child named Victor. Victor was born a slave, but the records show he is the son of her white slave owner's brother. Victor's great-granddaughter is 82-year-old Sybil Morial. We didn't talk about it. Were they trying to save you from well, the past? I, I have no, I don't know if it was shame or maybe they were trying to save us. They didn't want to inflict that sad story on us. But it was sort of affirmed that my slavery ancestry was real and it was only three generations ago. Morial only recently learned of her direct lineage, of her connection to the Whitney and of Victor's legacy beyond slavery. 
he bought land and farmed it. So he overcame that life. And then the next generation did better, and the next generation did better, and then I'm, it's my generation, educated, successful. Morial was a civil rights worker, a college vice president, and the first black first lady of New Orleans. But I already knew that. I married her son, Mark. But how did you feel after you brought all of us together here? I felt that I had given you my family the ancestry in color. So my children now know. They now that know. They're great. 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 Grandmother was an African slave. Knowing can be freeing, but most often here, it is painful. One of the last sights are these sculpted heads, replicas of 60 men beheaded for their role in a local slave revolt more than 200 years ago. But Cummings wants people to realize we aren't that far removed. You look at the paper and you'll see that some militant group has uh, decapitated a French journalist. And we all wonder what kind of barbarians could do that. We did that. Americans, we did that. Americans with white skin, we did that. Do you feel guilty? No, only, only if I don't do what I'm doing right now. Over half of the people who come in here cry, and I cry. You still cry? I do, and proud of it. It affects me. The injustice is there. You really can't do anything about it to change it. But maybe you can change some of the effects of it. And that's what I think I'm doing. Just accepting that history can do that? Owning it. Please remember that not all black people came to America as immigrants. The majority can trace their roots back to slavery as people who were ripped from their native lands and forced to come to America as subservient and live that way uh, for many centuries. John Cummings in the early 1990s purchased the Whitney Plantation, which originally was 1,700 acres of land and had 101 slaves to work the fields and carry on the domestic duties on the grounds and in the mansion. And the plantation was originally owned by a German immigrant family and had passed hands many times over the two-plus centuries uh, that it existed. John Cummings' goal upon learning the plantation's history was to acknowledge the shameful history of slave ownership in the South and to honor the slaves who once lived on the plantation. For those who go and tour the plantation, you better sign up early to get a ticket because you need one way in advance for this venue. And at the beginning of the tour, every participant is given a lanyard with a name tag on it, and the name tag is of a former slave who was there. And the first stop on this historic museum trip is to the Big Bell, which was known as the Calling Center. And they're taught history as they're there. And when it was time to work or time to eat or time to quit for the day, or when it was time to come in and watch a beating, a whipping, the bell was rung. And often the beating or even the mutilating was done by fellow slaves, usually the domestic versus the, uh, and grounds workers versus the field hands to keep them at odds with one another. 
within their own ethnicity. And for runaways, there were special, violent, abusive punishments. And by the way, they had expert trackers that made a living with their dogs tracking down runaway slaves, sort of a bounty, uh, bounty hunters. And after slavery ended uh, in the South, these ruthless enforcers, you know what they became? They became the police officers, the law enforcement officers of Reconstruction and the Jim Crow era. If you wonder the history of tension between black people and law enforcement, it's all right there. When a runaway was caught, they would be, of course, whipped. There were the hot boxes that you saw. There were also cuttings, and a branding would be put on the back of the right shoulder to depict for everybody to see that this was a slave who had run away. Second time, if they got caught running away, they got the same kind of treatment, but then they would be branded on the opposite shoulder, the left shoulder, to then determine that they had twice run away. A third time running away meant that you got your hamstring cut or part of your foot taken off, or in some cases, uh, some men lost their manhood. Now, everybody on the tour then is invited to go over to the bell and ring the bell for the person whose name is on their lanyard. And often when they do that is when people begin to weep. Families were often split up on the plantations, in many cases shackled to their beds at night. Men and women slept in different shacks. And one of the men in our church has actually toured a number of these in the south because his job took him there over the years. And he said, you would not put your chickens in some of those shacks that they lived in. And uh, he, uh, children are often sold as slaves to gain income for the plantation, but it was also to destroy family ties and family histories, as well as to keep the, servant, the slaves subservient because they were so fearful that their children would be sent away, they were more likely to keep in line. And so they lived their entire lives in fear. Mothers with babies were allowed to come out of the fields twice a day to nurse their babies during long, backbreaking 12, 14, sometimes 16-hour days. Can you imagine only feeding your baby twice during the daytime? It is absolutely amazing that anyone could survive under such physical, psychological, emotional, and social brutality. You want to talk about a hardy stock of people? So why are we talking about this today? Because we need to overcome the power of shame and guilt from our nation's history, which is why our message is entitled today, Beyond Shame and Guilt. The covering up or the whitewashing of our nation's history or simply trying to sanitize it does not build bridges of racial reconciliation. As we spoke of last week, we need to acknowledge our collective history as Americans to move forward. And here's what you got to understand. True biblical justice does not bypass guilt and shame. And herein lies the crux of our problem. Because as Americans, as people who have grown up in the land of the free and the home of the brave, who truly cherish all of our individual freedoms that allow us to pursue life, liberty, and happiness, in Western societies like ours, uh, individualism is highly prized. So, our measure of morality is based upon individual guilt and individual innocence. 
This is how we justify never having to confess or repent of our history's nation, our, our nation's history of racism. Why do I need to do these things, we say? I, I do not have to confess or repent for any of that. I never owned slaves, or neither did anybody in my family, or I have never in my entire life unjustly treated a person of color. Why should I ever have to confess or repent? Some will even say, I have relatives who fought in the Civil War for the North to free slaves. Besides, our nation was not built upon the back of slaves, as you heard in the video. That was the South. The North was an industrialized country. The South was an agrarian economy. In fact, that's why the South lost the war. Even though the South had better generals for half to two-thirds of the war, it's because they were so based upon agrarian lifestyle and not an industrial part of the country. Yes, I hear all of that. But please know that in the Bible, guilt and shame are never divided in such a narrow individualistic sense. In the Bible, guilt and shame are certainly individual, but when it comes to national sins, it is most often communal. Thus, the Bible will point to the need for corporate repentance. Again, Ezra, but let me read for you verses 1 through 9. After these things had been done, the leaders came and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race, you know, that's God's chosen people, with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led, them, led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone also trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God. And I prayed, I am too ashamed and disgraced my God to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great because of our sins. We and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in the sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief to our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us a new life to rebuild the house of the God and repair its ruins. And He has given us a wall to protect in Judah and Jerusalem. Ezra was the priest who led one of the early waves of the Israelites back from Babylonian captivity that was 70 years in length. And not everyone came back because they had adapted to life in, in, in Babylon and along the Euphrates River. They had acclimated to the customs, the culture, the foods, uh, the work there, and there was work there actually, and they'd even intermarried some of them with Babylonians. Besides, life in this war-ravaged Judea who for the better part of a century had been nothing more than a pile of rubbish. Life in Jerusalem 
was too uncertain. It was too risky. It required too much dependence upon God for what the future would possibly hold. So some said, I'm not going back. No way. And Ezra, the faithful priest, led some people back where they would eventually rebuild the temple and the fortified wall around Jerusalem, rebuild the city itself, and then get reestablished in the promised land. And Ezra's role was to reintroduce the people to the law of God, to God's Word in Hebrew, which was the Torah, meaning instruction, teaching them the Bible, the Old Testament Scriptures that they had available at that time. But did you notice in verses 6 and 7, he says he's lifting up his face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens from the days of our ancestors. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests. Ezra is praying this. And though he is personally innocent of all of this, he still feels the guilt and the shame of Israel's sin. He confesses. He laments, he acknowledges, as well as connects with the sins of Israel, repenting as well of these sins so as to help Israel turn the corner in the opposite direction. Daniel did the same thing. In Daniel chapter 9, if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn there with me to verses 1 through 8 in the book of Daniel. Now, before I read this, if ever there was a person who had a right to complain about God's, uh, you know, to God about their life circumstances, it would be Daniel. He was torn from his family as a teenager, brought away and, and ripped away from his native homeland in Israel, forced to live in captivity in Babylon. And this was a common tactic in ancient warfare. If a nation conquered other, another nation, they would then remove the brightest and the best young people, the movers and the shakers, the young promising leaders who someday could lead a revolt against them. They would take them out of there. And the goal was to take them to the new ruling country's homeland and then indoctrinate them in the ways of the new culture. And it wasn't always through oppression either. Sometimes they wined and dined them. They gave them the best of the sensual pleasures that their culture had to offer to win them over. Well, Daniel would have none of that. Listen to Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. In the first year of Darius of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the Scriptures, according to the word of the Lord, given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with Him in prayer and petition, in fasting, in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenant of love and whose love and those who love Him and keep His commandments. We have sinned and have done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from Your commands and laws. We have not listened to Your servants, the prophets, who spoke in Your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, You are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, and all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you, we and our kings, our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame. Lord, because we have sinned against you. Daniel was faithful to God to the point where he was destined to be killed in the lion's den if it were not for God's miraculous intervention. Yet he speaks in the first person about 
the sins of his nation as we, 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 we. Daniel was innocent of the sins of his people, but he did not distance himself from the collective sin of Israel. He owned up to it as a member of the people of God. See, both Daniel and Ezra experienced a personal distress of guilt and shame, even though they were innocent. And in so doing, their experience of shame and guilt provided the opportunity to recognize the ugly reality that led to their nation's contemporary circumstances and their tremendous need to call upon God to spare His people. In America, there's plenty of collective guilt and shame to acknowledge as we spoke about in last week's message. And if you haven't been here for this sermon series, or those of you listening online haven't been, please go back and listen to the first two messages of this series because all of this hangs together and fits together and builds on one another. So let me ask you today, does your heart break over the inhumane treatment of so many people in our nation's history, many of whom have been people of color? Have you ever tried to whitewash this or explain it away? Have you ever tried to deny our nation's history? Pretend it really didn't happen the way it did. As John Cummings said, we have to own it. Friends, we need to bring this to God and pray for God to spare our land. And I ask you today, are you up for that? Are you up for that? And then guess what the Bible teaches will happen? We will no longer live in shame and guilt. What John Cummings said in the opening video was absolutely profound. Do you feel guilty? And his response was, no. The only guilt he would feel, he said, is if he didn't continue to do this work. In other words, guilt and shame comes from continually perpetuating injustice or practicing injustice. In Micah 6, 8, remember what it says? What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is why the good news, the gospel, one of our pillars in this sermon series is so important in bridge building and the bridge building of racial reconciliation. Some people actually do not believe that talking about restoring relationships is the gospel or the main message of the Bible. They often do concede that it's biblical to talk about restoring relationships, but they say it's not part of the Bible's core message. Such people would say that the gospel is simply the story of how God came to save us. Thus, sermons should always be about God and not about human relationships. Such an understanding, I must say, is only part of the gospel. Because God saving us also is intended to reveal itself daily in our lives. And if we're connected to God, but we struggle to connect to other human beings around us, and if that somehow is magnified by someone's ethnicity or their skin color, the amount of melanin in their body, then something is seriously wrong with this picture. Listen to Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. 
God is saying that being reconciled to others, doing our part to live at peace with everyone, is extremely important to me. To people of faith, he says, it even takes precedence over worship, over presenting your offering at the altar. Do you know that in the South during Reconstruction and the Jim Crow era, that there were white Southerners who were present and endorsing lynchings of black people on Saturday and then in church worshiping God on Sunday? God's Word says, this does not work. Folks, if you are following, then, then, if you are following God, then stories of reconciliation which include racial reconciliation, should follow in your wake. If such stories do not exist in your life or are few and far between, then you might not be as spiritual as you think you are. You know, there's so many incredible stories about this church, Mission Covenant Church, how we were started by Swedish immigrants who made their way over to, this, uh, you know, to America and then found their way up here and then hacked out a livelihood uh, and this church in the wilderness, out of the wilderness, 127 plus years ago. How very early on, the very first Sunday of the month, like this Sunday is, was set aside for missions. And in our earliest days, a lot of the ministry and resources were devoted to reaching indigenous people. Fast forward to this incredible tool that we're now sitting in, a 38,000 square foot building built by a revived, revitalized congregation who worked diligently and sacrificed generously to create this incredible facility, this tool for ministry that's completely paid for. And over the years, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people have been saved and ministered to and discipled. And we have missionary associations with career missionaries like we're celebrating today with Lorraine. And I'm telling you what, it's two Sundays in a row that I'm grieving. I mean, we grieved last Sunday as Pastor Kerry left, and now as we think of Lorraine leaving, it's like 41 years we've had this association. And the same with Larry and Gail Williams right now. We have two partnerships, two associations with missionaries that span more than four decades. Yet with all of that said, if we do not have stories of broken relationships being restored, of reconciliation taking place, then we have a problem. The gospel is about a Messiah who came to heal the brokenhearted. And the real problem with shame and guilt not being owned is that it gives others the opportunity or at least the power to continually shame and cast blame and guilt, which only stokes among people feelings of frustration and anger, of hopelessness and helplessness on all parties, on all sides of the equation, on all parties involved. Living with guilt and shame is to live in a constant state of loss, a constant state of feeling worthless. You know, some of the well-known therapists uh, use an exercise when they are teaching classes and counseling and therapeutic techniques. They ask the students in their class to anonymous, anonymously turn in a piece of paper with their response to the one single, the one single thing about themselves that they are least inclined to share with others. What one thing about yourself would you be least likely to tell anybody else about? And you know what the number one top secret response is among all classes, among all ethnicities and cultural backgrounds? It's shame. Feeling worthless, not being good enough. 
And such people never end up reaching their God-given potential in life, especially in areas of reconciliation with others, including racial reconciliation. They are somehow locked up in their own prison of guilt and shame. And brothers and sisters in Christ, this is not the place from which God intends for His church, for us to live out our lives. You know, for our prayer time today, I want to pray a prayer of racial reconciliation that was written by a woman named Cassandra Elbert. She entitles the prayer, A Prayer to Confess Shame and Guilt. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we confess that in our humanity we have sinned against You by our actions and thoughts, and we have sinned by failing to do the things that You have required of us. At times our lives have reflected only our selfish desires and motives through hurtful and harmful words spoken against others created in Your image and through actions that do not honor You. Apart from Your grace, we are incapable of living into the fullness of who You have created us to be. This awareness brings with it the burden of shame and guilt. In our humility, we are grateful for the blood of Jesus Christ, which redeems and covers all shame and guilt, and for the Holy Spirit, who empowers us to forgive like You, to love like You, and to see others the way You see them. We are thankful that because of the cleansing power of the cross, we can lay all our guilt and shame at the feet of our Savior. In the powerful and redeeming name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.